Um, we're going to start a, n- a new series next Sunday on the heartbeat of community for a few weeks talking about that. But we're finishing up a series we've been doing through the summer through the book of Philippians, talking about Christ, our joy. And I don't know about you all, but um, I've, I've had fun preparing it because God has been reminding me that Christ is indeed joyful. And I, I, I don't know about you. Sometimes I struggle with, is Christ joyful? Sometimes life is hard. So it's good to be reminded of that. But um, we're going to be doing the last portion of the book here in chapter 4, starting verse 10. So I think we have the verses up here. If you want to pull it up on your Bible or your Bible device, uh, we'll be reading from chapter 4, starting verse 10. And this is the Apostle Paul writing here to the church in Philippi. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. For I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. And as Paul writes here, concluding his letter, I can identify with some of what he writes about in terms of hearing from them. Because um, if, if you've been at different points throughout the summer, trying to get connected to our website. You might've noticed it's been down at different times. I think it's actually still currently down. Part of that, we've, our website got hacked. So everything got jacked up. I haven't had email. Like my church email address has been down the whole summer. So I imagine there was a point now, if you email my church email address, I think it gets bounced back, which is actually good because it tells you it's not going through. There was a period for about a few months or a few weeks this summer where it wasn't even getting bounced back. It was just getting lost somewhere in cyberspace. So I was sending stuff and it wasn't getting to people. People were sending me stuff. It wasn't, I, I, was, I wasn't getting it. It was just lost. And maybe it's my control side nature of me. I was going crazy. I'm thinking, what if someone is like going through like the biggest life tragedy and they've emailed me and waiting on me and they're just thinking I'm some punk that doesn't reply. And they're just thinking, all right, forget this guy. Forget these. They talk all about caring. They don't care. They don't even reply to emails. Um, and I was stressing about that. Because there's something about not knowing what's going on with people that we're so tied to our communications, right? Where for some of you, worst tragedy would be as if your cell service goes down. You know, that is like first, first world problems, but that's like your issues, right? If your cell service goes down. Imagine Paul then, that in a world without electronic communication, he had no way of knowing how people are doing. Especially people who are beloved to him, like this Philippian church, one of the churches he planted, and he loves them. So imagine you're Paul. And if you remember throughout the series, we know he's writing from prison. So Paul's in prison and all the challenges that go along with that. And you don't even know what's going on with your closest friends. 
Because there's no email at the time. There's no like Twitter accounts like, yo, props to Paul, hashtag Philippi. I mean, there's none of that stuff, right? There's no way to know. So imagine what happens when you read in verse 8, what we read in verse 18 here, that your friend Epaphroditus, he comes to you from the people of Philippi to bring good news. He comes to you to describe how the church has grown and how the things that you taught them, they're still holding on to and they still love Jesus and they love one another and they're living these things out. And, And if you're Paul, you're so encouraged because you realize, man, they really get the gospel. They, these, these folks, they really get the message of Jesus. And how do we know that they get it? How does Paul know that they get it? Because they didn't just send their well-meaning thoughts. They didn't just send, hey, Paul, thinking about you and praying, bro. They sent money. They sent their gifts, financial gifts. And I think I mentioned this in one of our earlier sermons back in that day. I mean, we talk about prison system in U.S. and there's some jacked up stuff about it. But you get treated fairly well in like prisons in the U.S. compared to a lot of places around the world, especially compared to 2,000 years ago. Because back then, if you were in prison and you had no means, you were in a really tough spot because it was up to your friends and your family to provide for you, to provide for you while you're in prison. So for Paul, he's depending on these people. And, and these were probably the gifts that they sent through this guy Epaphroditus. I'm going to guess it was probably not a small amount. Because they would not have sent a messenger all that way to just send a small gift. This is probably a substantial gift they're sending here. And, and this has been a church that's dear to Paul because, as he mentioned here, as you read, they're, they're a church that has supported him from the beginning. When he was being sent out as a missionary, even when no one else was supporting him, they supported him. They gave him financial help. And verse 17, though, it makes really clear why Paul is overjoyed about this. He, he makes it, he's saying here, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. So they sent this money. Paul, I mean, it's great, but what he's telling them really clearly, hey guys, the reason that I'm really thankful here is not just because you're helping me out, not just because you're coming through for me, but your generosity to me, it's evidence to me that this gospel has really grabbed your heart. The fact that you're sending this money to me, it shows me that you really get who Jesus is. That this is not some flash in the pan, get excited about a revival meeting and do some Bible stuff. This has really settled in and you get this because we talk about it all the time at our church, right? Um, Our money, the way we use our money and the things we own, it's the best indicator of our relationship with God. How we use what we own and what we possess, how we're generous to others, how we give to uh, people who need it to the church, it's the best indicator of if we really understand that God has given us everything in Christ. If we understand how he's fully given us everything we need, how then do we not give to others? And that's what Paul's talking about in verse 18. He calls their giving a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's saying that what you're giving here, this is good. This honors God. It's a good thing that you're doing here. And again, at our church, we talk about giving a lot. We, we, I mean, we live in a neighborhood where I, I'm trying not to step on toes, but churches are notorious for like asking about money like over and over and over again. Like sometimes the point of like passing the basket around like three times until they what to get what, what they need for the day. And like a real kind of 
people get weird when they think about church and money in our neighborhood. So you would think we wouldn't talk about it at all. We actually are opposite. We talk about money a lot. Here's why. Um, we're serious about your whole development as someone who would follow Jesus. What that means, that's not just coming here for an hour and a half on Sunday and looking all holy and jumping around and looking all pious. We believe in a holistic following of Christ. What that means is when you follow Jesus, it doesn't just impact what you do at 1030 on Sunday. It impacts what you do your whole week. It impacts how you view your relationships. It impacts how you view um, your, your, your family. It impacts how you view yourself. It impacts how you view your money. So for us, if we're serious about helping you to grow to fully follow Jesus in every sphere of your life, it would be irresponsible of us to talk about all these quote-unquote spiritual things and never talk about money. Because ultimately, when we're saying, hey, give to God, give your offering, this is not just to pay the bills. We are not going to be a church that like turns off the AC one day and say, all right, guys, you saw the effect of you not giving. Someone's got to pay the bills. Come on. Pony up or you want... Don't you want good brand coffee or you want, you know, we're not going to do that. It's not about just paying bills. This is ultimately a worship issue because you're not just giving to people. You're giving to God because you're saying to him, when you give Lord, I trust you. Even in what I might not have a lot of, I trust you. So I I think Paul's hitting on a similar idea here. So he's grateful. Paul is grateful, but he's also using this as a final teaching point of what it means to find joy in Christ. Because Paul makes it clear, as thankful as he is for what they're giving to him, it's not because he's in need. I mean, he repeats it a couple times. Hey, guys, it's not because I'm in need. Thanks a lot. But it's not because I need these things. Why? One practical reason, he wants them to make sure that they know he's not in this for the money. Because I know this is going to be shocking for some of us, but back in that day, you had people traveling around and, and sharing wisdom and, and sharing things like philosophy and teaching. To, and they would sell it. <laughs> they would go from town to town and they would sell their teaching. And so people got really skeptical of people who were teaching even the Bible. And again, I know that's really hard for us in 2015 to understand that anyone would make money off this whole Jesus thing. And I know it's really hard to fathom, but I, I heard it happens sometimes. Um, but for Paul... So he wants them to know, hey, guys, I'm not in here to make a buck. But also, this goes beyond just demonstrating his integrity. He genuinely believes as great as those financial gifts are, he doesn't need them. As he says in verse 11, in whatever situation I am to be content. He's telling them, guys, thanks for the money. I really appreciate it. But I I actually don't need it because I've learned to be content. And he goes on to describe what this process of learning contentment in verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every and every circumstance, any and every circumstance. I've learned a secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And Paul, and for some of you who are like really, really smart and love reading and things, you love Paul because he's an intellectual. He appeals to your intellectual level. He's smart. He's well thought out. Um, and, there's some scholars I know that kind of like would like to be like Paul, but if I, I tend to get like, I have certain pet peeves. One pet peeve of mine is people who know a lot about God, but their whole experience of God is from sitting in like an ivory tower, just writing a lot or studying a lot, but, and they get really good at critiquing everyone else, but they never really live out their faith. 
Paul, he's intellectual, as deep as a scholar is. He didn't come to believe these truths from sitting away somewhere just writing. That's not how Paul learned it. His belief in Jesus, it was forged in the real fires of life. So when he says he knows what it means to be brought low and, and how to abound, when he says he knows what it means to have a lot and what it means to have nothing, he's speaking from life experience. Because Paul, I mean, the man, he knows what it is to be at the top. He came from an affluent family. He came from a well-educated background. So before he even ever met Jesus, he, he had a, a good, comfortable life. But even after he met Jesus, I mean, crazy story. He was walking along the road going ready to arrest Christians, and God just met him. Jesus met him on the road. He went blind, and I would encourage you to read it. It's all open source there in the Bible. Good stuff, right? Paul, and, and Paul got saved. Jesus just saved him. And, 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 and Paul, what happened is the story is right after that, he just starts preaching. I mean, right after Paul got saved, right after he went from like a criminal who was arresting Christians and wanting to kill them, he goes to a preacher of the gospel. And it describes in chapter 9 of the book of Acts that he's preaching right after his conversion and the people there can't handle it because he's so smart. It's like he's confounding them with his arguments. No one can prove to him that he's wrong because he's that smart. So Paul, he's just genius. And he lived at this high level. He knows what it is to do well. But he's not just brilliant intellectually. He's also, he was also a very full of spiritual power. And I'm not going to read every verse here, but the stories in general in Acts chapter 13, there's this just tremendous story of Paul. He's preaching and he's, he's doing his work as he does. And then there's this man who's just disrupting everything. He's disrupting everything. So, and he's, and he's, what Paul does, he just casts a demon out of him. He casts a demon out of this guy who was preventing the preaching of the gospel. And it leaves this man um, blind and mute. I mean, that's spiritual power. Paul experienced what it means to be full of the power of God. Uh, in Acts chapter 14, another story about Paul, it describes he's in Lystra, and, and there's a crippled man there, a, a crippled man from birth. And Paul tells him, yo, oh, dude, get up, stand up. And the guy gets up and stands up. And the people there are so amazed at the power that Paul showed, they start calling him and Barnabas, Hermes and Zeus. They start saying, yo, you guys are like gods who came to our world. You, and, and, you know, obviously Paul and Barnabas, they go, no, 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 no. We're just like you. But, but they know what it means to be lifted up high. There's power. I mean, in, in Acts chapter 19, Paul's power is described as being so great. Even the handkerchiefs that he used and the aprons that he wore, people were like touching them because they heard that there was spiritual power. If you even touched the stuff that touched Paul, I mean, it's crazy stuff. And, and, you know, Part of, like, when I read about Paul and, and his journeys throughout the book of Acts, I mean, cities like Ephesus, you just read about the work that he was doing, that, like, the whole city came to know Jesus, pretty much. It disrupted the whole business centers of the city. It disrupted everything because Jesus got known throughout this whole city. So Paul experienced mass revival. So he knows what it is like to be on top of the world. He knows what it is like to follow Jesus when everything is going great, when you can't touch stuff and it doesn't go bad. He, he knows that. But as great as the successes Paul had, he also knows what it is to go through the hardest things in life. I mean, he, he did some powerful good stuff. He also knows what it means to be in the toilet. Um, I, 
I, I've experienced uh, nowhere near Paul, right? But I, I've experienced more recently what it, ha- what it means to have people really dislike you because of what you do. It's, it's funny. I mean, even um, I, I know last spring when everything was going on in Baltimore and I had the opportunity to write some different stuff, talk about the riots and some of the systemic issues in the city. I mean, you wouldn't believe some of the things I had people writing to me online, um, sending to me, posting about me. I mean, I felt really bad for you guys because, you know, a lot of people are saying, I feel so bad for that man's church, you know, having to sit under this teaching of this heretic. Yeah, you know, I mean, people were saying stuff like that. They, they were saying, like, I don't, I, you know, th- what, this is one of those churches that doesn't believe in the Bible. This is, this is what, um, you know, being accused of being a race baiter, being accused of all these different, being accused that I hate white people. I'm like, What? <laughs> Like, are, are you seriously, you know, like stuff like that. And even in our own neighborhood, I, I, I mean, no joke. We've got situations where people like wait for me at different places to be able to tell me how much of a heretic I am. I mean, it's, it's hilarious. I, I mean, not that funny, but, <laughs> and, and, you know, I kind of laugh it off cause I don't take it that seriously, but there's a part of me that gets kind of weary about it after a while. It's like, you know, yo, if you're going to like slander me, at least quote me correctly. You know, quote my heresy correctly, if, that, if that's what it is to you. You get kind of tired of it. But you look at the life of Paul. He experienced like little bits of that kind of hate, but that's at a whole nother level. So, listen, and I'm going to read from, from 2 Corinthians 11. Paul famously lists off some of his sufferings. This is uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. And Paul writes here, I am talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Basically, five times he was beaten like what Jesus got beat before his crucifixion. Three times I was beaten with rods. Oh my God, with a rod? Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. A lot of danger, right? Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness. He's basically danger everywhere. Danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Basically, Paul is saying, yo, my life sucked. (laughs) It is hard. I was getting beat up. I was getting yelled at. I was having people hate me. I was hungry. I didn't have money. I was thirsty. There was nowhere I could go. I couldn't go camping. I couldn't go boating. It all, basically his life, and the last thing, and on top of all that, just caring about all the churches and the anxiety that goes along with that. And I, I, you know, I get to talk to a lot of people who want to start churches like similar to what we're doing and they pray about, and they tell me, and you know, they've got such eager faces. So I don't, I don't like to burst their bubbles too much, but they're like, yeah, you know what? We're praying because we want to see a revival in the city. We want to see things like the book of Acts. Like we want to see what happens in the book of Acts happen in name your city. And I'm like, oh, you want a movement like that? <laughs> You're talking about all like fancy stuff, right? Like healings and all. But you want what Paul describes? You want beatings and sufferings and hunger and slanders? You want that? Is that the kind of movement you're talking about? Because that's what Paul went through. Because Paul knows what it means to be on top of the world. 
he also knows what it means to suffer. And if you would track his story, those two usually go hand in hand. He'll, he'll have like an amazing day, and like the very next day, it'll go really bad. And he just goes back and forth like this, back and forth like this. So in the midst of all that, guys, what's Paul's secret of contentment? He's learned that you can have everything or you can have nothing, but as long as you have Christ, you have all you really need. Paul has learned from his experience, you can have everything in the world or you can have absolutely nothing in the world, but he's learned as long as you have Jesus, you really got all that you need. I mean, it puts that famous verse there in 13 in proper perspective. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I love that verse, but I hate how it's butchered. Because how, how this verse is butchered is you go on like Facebook and there's like this beautiful picture of a, like a lake and then someone puts this verse there, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Or it's like an Olympic athlete. And like, I, I'm, not, I'm not like ragging on professional athletes or amateur, but the truth is a lot of it, like right before the big game, they put that verse up there, right? Philippians 14, yo. I can do all things through Christ. I, I know I can win this game through Christ who strengthens me. Or, you know what? I know that I'm, I'm an underdog for this job, but I can get this job through Christ who strengthens me. I can do anything. Um, I, I don't know if that's how Paul's using it here. <laughs> I don't think he's using this as like an inspirational pep talk for people. Like, I don't think he's trying to tell the like five foot nothing dude that, yeah, you can play for the Ravens because through Christ, you can do anything. I don't think so. I mean, I believe in miracles, but maybe I don't think that's what he's talking about here because this is not about personal power. This is not saying, yeah, you know what? I know your life is stunk up to this point, but man, wait till you meet Jesus because he can make anything happen. I know you felt like a weakling your whole life, but now you are going to rise to the cream of the crop because of Jesus. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. I think he's actually saying a much more deeper, significant thing of what it means to know the power of Christ, whether you have it all or whether you have nothing, that that's what you really need. So let's, let's make it real. Let's, let's boil it down to you and me. Um, I've been reading this book recently. It's, it's fascinating. I mean, I have to read it it's for school, but it's rather fascinating. But it's Thomas Friedman's The World is Flat. Really fascinating, but some of you might have read it for a business class or whatnot. Um, but basically describes, like, all the different factors that have been in play in this last, like, maybe uh, 10, 15 years. And the book was written in 07, so it's a little dated. But basically, all these things converging in society to make the world flat. What he means by that is we're all the same now. So things like the Internet, things like technology, things like uh, the global economy, things like outsourcing, all of these different things have created a world where literally you can be like in India and you don't have to leave India anymore because the whole, um, all of the factories, we'll send everything there. And you can do, you can be like a CEO where you used to have to travel to this country and get educated, you don't have to leave wherever you are. And I like the world, the opportunities are there for everyone. And it's a fascinating book. Basically, this idea that the world has been flattened. We're all in the same place. But what I was realizing as I was reading that is we live in a society right now where we've been kind of told you can do whatever you want. Because back in the day, I mean, you were limited by maybe where you were born or what opportunities you had or what you looked like. But now in modern day 2015, 
If you really want something, gosh, you can have it. If you work hard enough, if you want it enough, everything is possible. And, and I, I think our world has been, has been constructed in a way to set up, to give you every reason why you should not be content. Because I don't know about you, I have everything at my fingertips now. I have every technology available. I can do whatever I want. I can go if I need to. I can, all of these things are available to me. If I want to like watch something in an instant, I can pull it up on a computer. If I need to communicate with someone, I can do it. I can do all these. If I want to buy something and I tell Amazon, hey, send it here in like two hours, a drone might even fly over and drop it at my house. I mean, we live in a crazy kind of world where everything is literally available to you in reason, but it's available to you. But the thing is, even though we had the world at our fingertips, it hasn't seemed to make us any more content. If anything, I would suggest maybe we're even more discontent. Even though we've got everything, we're still not very satisfied. We've got this groaning within us that wants more. I, I kind of um, I got a little picture of it from, from my daughter. Um, <laughs> She, she just turned uh, seven years old on Friday, and I am not using hyperbole here. She has counted down for about six months every day till her birthday. And she's good at math. So she said, oh, it's like 176 days till my birthday right now. I'm like, oh, seriously, we're going to do this every day? And she did every day counting down. And you can imagine, it's like a champagne bottle like this. Finally, the day comes. She's so happy. I made her her little pancake with her chocolate sauce face on it. That's like our little tradition. She was so happy. She was like, it's my birthday. It's my birthday. She's making little songs and all that, just loving it. You, No joke. That night, she said, oh, dad, there's 364 days till my next birthday. I'm like, you serious? <laughs> you're not even enjoying, I mean, you're, 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 the day's not even done yet and you're thinking about the next one? And what I recognized is she's just saying my heart. <laughs> she's revealing the human heart because we clamor to get things, right? We think if I can just get there or if I can just get that or if I can just be whatever, then I'll finally be happy then I'll finally be satisfied. But here's the thing. Um, and sometimes you only understand this the older you get. You realize it's not true. Because <laughs> sometimes you don't get the things and you're unhappy. But sometimes even more heartbreaking is you do actually achieve what you thought would make you happy. And you realize you're still lacking something in your heart. Because our society has this notion that there is something out there that will fulfill you. Yeah, you know what? You're a miserable person, but it's because you just need that romantic relationship that will fulfill your heart. The reason you're miserable is because you don't have that person who looks at you and says, I adore you more than anyone. Or yeah, you know what? Your attitude stinks, but it's just because you haven't achieved that job yet that you've been working your whole life towards. Yeah, college students, you know, you're just miserable. You're thinking, once I graduate and once I get to whatever place, once I get those letters behind me, then I'll be satisfied. Then I'll be, then I'll be content. Yeah, you know what? The reason why I'm just miserable right now is because I have no money. But if I just got some, a little extra room in my bank, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be satisfied. 
you know what? I mean, I'm, I'm not a complainer, but if I could just get that car, I mean, that, that's really all I need. If I just get that, what happens? You get the car, you get the toy, you get bored within two days. It's like Christmas all over again. Some of you young enough to remember Christmas when you're really eager to get that gift, you get it. And like two days, maybe one day, you're like bored of it. <laughs> like what's next? What's next? Because the reality is, is all these things that we have trained our heart to say, this is what will complete us. This is what will satisfy us. This is what will fill us. They're not necessarily bad things, but they're not eternal things. And if you try to fill your heart, which was made for the eternal, with something temporal, as good as it might be, it will never satisfy. It will always let you down. It will always make you ask, what's next? What's next? I describe it as if only, in quotes, if only. If only I had this. If only I lived here. If only that girl, man, I love coming to church, but look at all these beautiful people here. If only she would look at how much I worship God and go out with me. I know none of you are thinking like that, right? If only I had this problem go away. If only I could get into that school. If only whatever it might be, we have these ideas, if only. And the truth is, those things will not fulfill in the end. And here is why for some of you, for some of you, you need Jesus because your life is just jacked up. Let's just be honest. The reason why you're here is like, man, my life is falling apart. I need help. But for a lot of you, the reason you're here, you're not quite sure. And, and the reason is because your whole life, why you're so bored out of your mind in church is you feel that church is all about trying to tell you how to be a better person. And if you're brutally honest, you're looking at yourself and saying, I'm not really that bad. I mean, I'm not perfect, but I'm like moral. I'm, I mean, I'm, yeah, if I would look around here, I'm probably moral and more moral than 99% of the people here. And, and for you, Jesus has been just about how to become a better person. And that's why religion has been frustrating because you're not that bad of a person. But here's the thing. You're not free because you're still living in that trap of asking, if only, if only, if I could only have that, if only that got taken away, if I could only get there, then I'll be satisfied. And I think for you, I know for me, maybe what freedom is, is freedom to stop having to blame everything else for why your life feels the way it does. Stop looking for the reasons why you're not happy. Stop looking, because we do that, right? The reason why I'm miserable is because of my job. The reason why I'm miserable is because of my family. The reason why I'm miserable is because I have no money. The reason why I'm miserable is because my job is too stressful. The reason why I'm miserable is because of my kids. The reason why I'm miserable is because of midterms. Whatever it might be. And maybe freedom is the ability to stop blaming everything else and learn what Paul has learned. That in the end, if I have Jesus, whether I have a lot or whether I have nothing, he is enough. So for some of you, maybe you're stuck. Maybe that's where you're stuck at that you've been looking to different things for your satisfaction. And maybe what I could encourage you to do is repent. Maybe while you're here today, just repent. And maybe you've always thought of repent as like a really dirty, bad word. And you try to think of all the bad stuff you've done in the past week. 
Um, sure, do that. But maybe for you, what I could suggest repentance to look like is saying, Lord, what are all the things that I'm looking to to satisfy me? What are all the things that I've bowed down to say, if I only give myself enough to this, if I pour my heart out for this, if I give my full passion to this, then I'll be satisfied. Maybe for you, repentance looks like, Lord, this is not God. Forgive me for making it God and help me to worship you. And maybe that's what repentance looks like for you. But for some others of us, maybe you are Paul going through the hard times. Maybe you are like stuck out in a boat, <laughs> drowning. Maybe you're hungry. Maybe your life feels miserable. And, and I'm thinking about a verse or a, something, Corey Ten Boom, she said. It was just been on my mind. Think about this message. But she said this quote. She said, you can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. You can never learn that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have. And I'm going to say this, and you need to listen to me really carefully, otherwise you will think I'm a heretic. Um, I'm going to suggest that for some of us, the hard things that you're going through, the stuff that's really a struggle for you right now, is not necessarily just from the devil. (laughs) Because a lot of times, right, we go through hard times, and we just get into Satan, we pray Satan away mode. Like, it's all from Satan. I'm going to suggest some of the hard things you might be going through is God's severe mercy on your life. It's him loving you so much that he's even going to allow you. Uh, he's, hear me correctly. I'm not saying God is trying to punish you, but he might even allow you to go through certain things so your heart will get to a place that says, I've got nothing. I need Jesus. I know that's what happened to me. I had to get kicked out of school. I had to get, you know, dragged into the police station for all this different stuff that was happening. I needed to hit rock bottom for me to be able to cry out to say, okay, God, you got my attention. I need you. That's my story. I don't know who that applies to here. But if you're going through hard stuff, can you not just see it as punishment? Perhaps it's God's severe mercy upon your life right now to say you need more than your ability to get through this. You need God. So bow your heads with me. As our music team leads us to sing, sing to God. And I want to encourage us, don't just sing about God, sing to God this morning. Again, for some of you, maybe your life looks really tip-top right now. Maybe, objectively, someone would look at you and say, man, why do you even go to church? You look like you got it all put together. Maybe for you, you need to repent of not taking God very seriously in terms of you're still looking to other things for your satisfaction. You still think that a relationship, a a line item, a job, a degree, something, that'll complete you. And could I welcome you to repent and receive the sweet freedom of Christ that says, stop looking to those things. I will fulfill you as nothing else can. And again, maybe others of us, maybe you are going through the really hard times right now. Could I welcome you to come to the sweet mercy of Jesus that holds you, that reminds you that even though you might go and be thrown through storms, it does not necessarily mean that it's an evil thing, but God is using it to remind you he's in control. He loves you. He cares for you. Jesus suffered so that you ultimately don't have to suffer. And trust him today. And if you're here, and just, just to be very straight about it, 
Maybe you've been in church before, but you just never really had, it's just never been that serious of a thing for you. Um, I hope this helps you. I, I don't think church is just itself meant to be something to be taken seriously, if that's all it is. But the point is to see God. And I want to welcome you. Maybe you are frustrated in life. Maybe it's this is never, just never hit you before. But perhaps for you today, you can say, Lord, I am just sick and tired of just trying to do good things. I need to know God. Forgive me that I've looked to anything other than you to save me. And I want to be saved by you today. And receive that salvation. You Let us know. Receive new life as God would offer it, as Jesus died for you to have it. Let me pray for us. Lord, I pray for my friends here as we cry out to you. Lord, we're just tired of going through the motions. Lord, we're tired of of just trying to find happiness. And our whole world has at times taught us that we can have it all, that as long as we buy that new thing, the whole advertising business has been centered around trying to tell us what we don't have as the reason why we're not satisfied. But Lord, maybe you're trying to teach us the secret Paul learned. It's not about what we have or not about what we don't have, but it's about you. And you're trying to teach us, Lord, whether we have the world or whether we have nothing, that if we have you, that's what will truly give us hope and satisfaction. And I pray, teach us that, Lord, in this place. As we worship, as we set our eyes on you, teach us that in this place, Lord, that whether we're celebrating or whether we're mourning, we're still able to say we still have Jesus. And that's enough. Help us, God. Help us. Up front here, we have the communion table of the Lord. And if you're a Christian, I want to invite you during this time of song and prayer, come up here and, and take a piece of the wafer in the middle. Remember the broken body of Jesus. Remember the broken body of Jesus that was torn apart so that we could be given life. And dip it in the cup. Come from both sides, dip it in the cup. And remember the blood of Jesus that was shed so that our sins could be cleansed, so we could be made right with God. And you can take it right there at the table. And, and, and fix your eyes upon Christ. Let him continue to speak to your heart that he's enough. So let's do that. I'll encourage you to pray for a while before you do that. Don't just come up and do it because that's what you're supposed to do. Let's sing. Let's pray. Pray with one another if that's what you need to do. But let's respond to how the Lord's speaking.